Hello and welcome to the Apps You Level podcast, brought to you by Intelligent Briefings, a Lynchpin Media brand. My name is Alex Presley and I'm the lead editor at Lynchpin Media. This is the podcast where we speak to technology chiefs about how they're making waves in the industry, chatting to them about their career journey so far, their management style and how they're planning for what's yet to come. Simon started his career in information technology as a desktop support engineer for a London business travel agency. In the early days, he also worked in messaging system support and later as a Microsoft engineer where he developed his love for the industry. Soon after, Simon moved to Melbourne where he worked with IBM as a project engineer. In 2001, Simon took a role with agri-giant Cargill within their global technology team supporting the European businesses. During his years with the company, he moved into the technology security team working to support the global infrastructure team. Simon spent six years within the team and his move into the security realm was cemented. In early 2015, Simon took a role with Magic Circle law firm Clifford Chance as information security manager, where he worked to develop security awareness around the firm and improve system security to protect client data. Simon now works for wealth management firm Bruin Dolphin, where he is the head of information security and data privacy. His role focuses on governance, awareness and policy within the security domain. Hi Simon, thanks so much for joining me today on At Sea Level. At first up, can you set the scene for us? Can you give us an overview of what your typical day looks like as head of information security and data privacy at Bruin Dolphin? Absolutely. So in this world, we find ourselves in with being away from the office. Generally, I'll have a meeting with my team, a catch up, make sure that firstly, just from a welfare perspective, make sure they're all, you know, they've they're all survived the night. (laughs) It's not necessarily every day. And then also just to go over, because I have got three areas that report into me. I've got a data privacy team. I've got the information security team. And I've also got an operational resilience element. So crisis management. So they don't necessarily talk to each other during the day. And it's good for them to get crossover. And there might be different topics that they're covering that each team is worthwhile each team knowing about. And also just from a backup perspective, because there is an element of backup from those teams so they will provide backup so that'll be the first piece of the day then the majority of the day then will be sitting in on either project boards for example where there's a privacy or security element they'll also be meeting with my peers so in the risk and compliance space reaching out to my peers in the front office for example trying to get make sure that I'm connected through to those different areas of the business and understanding the challenges they're having and then also I regularly chair industry webinars for example and things like that and try and attend different industry groups firstly mainly for a cathartic reason and it's always good to realize that everybody else is facing the same pain as you and that can be terribly (laughs) it's great and also as well what I've always found in uh, in the security environment is there's no competition in it as such so if someone else in the industry has discovered a gap or an issue or they're identifying some uh, some form of attack that they're seeing then we'll talk about it we'll share information and it's really helpful that because it just puts you one step it can put you one step ahead of the bad guys and the bad guys seem to always appear to always be one step ahead of us in a sense that can be really useful as well so can you tell us a little bit about your career path to date are there any specific moments that have shaped the journey to where you are now so yeah i mean i started off 
25 years ago now in technology, working as a desktop support. And I used to support Microsoft Exchange servers and email servers. And about 15 maybe 20 years ago, I realized that the security space was something I was really interested in. I think also, if I'm honest with you, I identified it as a growth area. So, so it was a good career move from my perspective. And the firm that I worked for at, at the time, a company called Cargill, who are, a, uh, I think I'm right in saying, are the biggest privately owned business in America. It, mm -hmm. it does flip-flop, but they're a huge agri-business. Agri Where I live in Hereford, they have a large, uh, or had a large chicken factory. They've now sold it, but in working for them, I realized they had a really mature security. I've now realized they had a very mature security program, a CISO in place. And I worked in their technology governance risk and control environment. And that had a great fun for all, all sorts of reasons. Huge learning for me and sort of, you know, on the job learning. It had a global, had a global element to it. So I was talking to people all over the world and it was a fascinating because Cargill had chicken factories, chocolate factories, trading floors, all sorts of different environments. So, you know, you're injecting security into different elements and they're different challenges, you know, so from factories which have got Siemens robots in them. And so they, the challenges around making sure they're protected. And of course, actually, there's risk to life if those robots are, are compromised in some way, all the way to making sure that energy trading happens and, you know, the firm doesn't lose millions of pounds or millions of euros or whatever it is. So that started my security life. I then left them about seven years ago. I moved up to London, I weekly commute into London, and I started with Clifford Chance, the law firm, and that was very interesting. The legal sector was under huge scrutiny from its clients because it was seen as quite a weak element of, in terms of cybersecurity and information security, and I really enjoyed that. Again, that was an international firm. And then two and a half years later, a colleague of mine from Clifford Chance had been doing some work at Bruin Dolphin. And he put me in touch with them. And I've been there for the last four years as head of information security and privacy. So yeah, yeah that's that's pretty much brings me bang up to date. Yeah, interesting. It's an interesting, interesting journey. I think that's the exciting part of cybersecurity, isn't it? It's just it's constantly evolving and there's always something new, a new focus. Absolutely. I think one, one, one thing that I think is really exciting about it is there are most industries require it be it a school, a, you know, a chicken factory, as I've described, an international law firm, you, pretty much every business is facing this challenge right now. So you can sort of, it, it's rather a nice thing to be able to move to different sectors. It introduces variety, I suppose. So one of the questions we like to ask on the podcast requires some level of imagination. So let's just imagine we've invented a time machine and taken a trip down memory lane. Mm -hmm. You are faced with a 16-year-old version of yourself and at a crossroads in your life. From a careers perspective, what would you tell that person about the journey they are about to embark on? And what are some of the key differences in terms of how the world will change between then and now? Would you offer any advice? It's a really tricky one, that one. And I'll tell you, the reason why I say that is I haven't had a traditional career path in that I didn't leave school with anything that meant that I could actually, you know, go to university. So I sort of, I left and then sort of was looking around and what to do. I did a bit of time in the military. I then worked for Mark Warner, the holiday company, doing it as a handyman. I did that for a season, sort of not really a little bit lost, if I'm honest with you, because there's there's obviously those who are fortunate enough at a young age to have a vacation and they sort of see something and yeah. they go for it and that's fantastic 
and there's others where they you're sort of told the world is your oyster and being told the world is your oyster may seem like a good thing but actually it's such a huge breadth of things you could possibly do how i got into technology i'll be absolutely candid with you a neighbor where i was living required a, a career driver okay it was a business travel company and they required a, a career driver locally to where i was i was looking for something to do to keep me busy i said sure no worries i'll cover that for a couple of months i did it while i was there I realized that there were three brothers that owned this particular travel company and they were really hot on technology. And this is back in the 90s now when, yeah, technology was there, but it wasn't nearly in the same, you know, mobile phones were a very new thing that had black and white screens, et cetera. And it was a very new thing around. And I gradually taught myself a bit, realized I had an aptitude for it, was very lucky. They then moved me up into their office in London. I moved up to London. I then worked for them for a couple of years, learning all the time. And because it was one-to-one, relatively small company, I learned a lot from them. I ended up moving out to Australia for various reasons and managed to get a job with IBM while I was there. And that again, grew again. I was able to grow another learning. So I think the the bit of advice I give myself is don't worry about failing. That's the key thing is I think because in the majority of cases that's happened to me where things have happened, you realize that actually you're, you know, you can get up and it's as much as anything, it's taught you something about yourself as much as about that particular role or whatever it might be. And we aren't, we aren't all capable of everything, right? So, but having a go, give Mm. it a go. Yeah, that's a good piece of advice. I think it's Jeremy Clarkson, isn't it, that um, posts on Twitter every year when the, uh, the GCSE results come out and he says, I finished school with, I think he said use or something. He had, he had no GCSEs and he's like, look at me now, you can do anything. So, yeah. Absolutely. I've got three children at the moment, one who's at university, one who's doing his A-levels this year. So I'm being very quiet. I think, I think they're really important at this stage. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think the point is everything. Not ev- everybody's built in different ways, and some people will yeah. be incredibly successful through that traditional path, and others won't be. And those that aren't shouldn't worry about it. There are other options out there. Definitely, yeah. So that brings us to the second section of the podcast called the Chief, which is where we find out more about your management style. So okay. What would be your advice to other members of the C-suite on the best approach for communicating their area of expertise? Okay, so if we talk about communicating our area of expertise, so for example, let's talk about the board, for example. Let's say, you know, we're regularly communicating with a group of people who are running a business. They're obviously concerned about cyber, but they've obviously, they've got other risks that they have to worry about. So I think A, it's every every type of business is different every business has a different culture they might have their own nuance of language that they use around risk for example and you must also understand what those other risks are because of course you fear believe cyber is the biggest risk it's you know it's often in the headlines etc etc but actually you won't have the visibility the board has of all the different things that are going on in the business necessarily, right? And so you need to make sure you're pitching your elements against those. And when I say against them, you need to make sure it's measured against them so that you're not trying to suggest that that your risks are more or less, you're trying to make sure that they're measured, they're at at the right level. Mm -hmm. So some may well be greater, but other times it may not be and understand that. And I think as well, then, if you are then talking around the business, it's again, it's learning from your other peers, for example, what's their challenges. And, you know, you are almost certainly going to be providing an element of complexity 
to them because you're asking them to maybe take a few more steps from a security perspective. And so that also, if you are sympathetic to their challenges and understand their challenges, you can deliver the message in the right way. Mm -hmm. But I think fundamentally, and I think the term security by design or privacy by design, which is you know what everybody talks about now, that's where you can be really successful. Because if you get this stuff going in at the bottom, so when a project's being spun up, bits of data are gonna be used in that, people understand that they have to secure that at that very starting point, then a lot of the challenges, dare I say it, that you might see if you've suddenly got to stick security on at the end, don't happen. It's already done. It's built into a system or a database. So how important is implementing a strong cybersecurity culture within your organisation and how do you actively ensure that you do this? It's really important. It's obviously because everybody is a security person. Interestingly, one of the successful ways we do it is by using our employees' home environment as a way of describing a risk and then hoping that that behavior comes back into the office. Okay, so I think what, what tends to happen, people have, or to very traditionally, as soon as there's somebody with a security name, doesn't matter if it's physical or, you know, cyber or whatever it is, or data security, they immediately think it's somebody else's problem and they're in the building and they're working. So that's fine. Somebody's dealing with this, right? If you describe at home, and people will often come to me with things that's going on at home, challenges they're facing, what should they do? If you use that home environment as, as an example of where they've got to protect themselves, so complex passwords, different passwords for different accounts, all of those kinds of things, then actually they will tend to bring that behavior back into the office. We use e-learning is one key element of our awareness plan. And in that, what we've done is in, instead of having just one hour every year of a real sort of download, we've cut it up into four elements. So every year, some every quarter, they will do an information security or a data privacy piece of training, which is only 15 minutes, but it just reminds them it's got a similar look and feel to it. So it keeps that thought process constant. We've used the police do some fantastic things around the country where they will come in and present. They do some tabletop exercises which are, which are really engaging and people like doing. We're looking at this year about an escape room that the Met Police have put together that they come in and run. And it's all about, you know, you just try and get as many people in, doesn't matter where they are from the business. If you get the people that want to do it and they come from all over the business and they then go back to their desk and say, wow, that was really interesting. Next time round, we get more coming in. And we'll also run things like fishing. We'll run a fishing campaign the whole year round. So people are being tested on that because, you know, whilst I'm, you know, it's not the bulletproof prevention of somebody clicking on a link. You hope that if you're constantly challenging people, they're thinking about it. The escape room sounds really interesting. We actually did one for our Christmas party one year and it was extremely difficult. <laughs> and oh, was it? Yeah, and that wasn't uh, hosted by the Met Police. So. <laughs> okay, no, so I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't done it. One of my team's done it and he came back and was, you know, it, it's just keeping it interesting, right? And yeah. it, it, if, if, if you can keep it interesting and challenging, people will enjoy doing those things. And if you can just keep it at the top of their thought all the time, then that really helps. Yeah, this is a subject that you probably better for talking about, really, because it is quite heavily talked about across the industry. But how do you think that organisations should be working to close the cyber skills gap? I think there's a couple of ways that, that we can do that. You see, one of the things that I think is really important when you're employing somebody for a, a job 
is not just the skill set it's there whether they will be successful in the culture of a business mm -hmm. and every business is different you know the law firm the wealth manager the chicken factory the chocolate factory they all have a slightly different culture there'll be lots of commonalities believe it or not but there'll also be those differences so actually one of the things i look for in people that i employ is it's more about will they be successful in that environment I could have the best data privacy, and I, I'll say this, I think my data privacy as officer is one of the best, but <laughs> she is successful just as much from her capability as her ability to work in the business and understand and be able to communicate with that business. If, if she was brilliant at being a data privacy officer, but could not communicate with the business and wasn't able to get her issues across or challenge, et cetera, then we would be unsuccessful. So I think what we need to do is start looking around for those roles. So technology, for example, as technology, the technology teams start to maybe get offshored or, you know, all of those sort of things. You can look at those people who've got a traditional technology skill set and say, well, actually, all you need to do is flip it around the other way. And there's an element of using that skill set for security. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that has really surprised me, my middle son is going through his A-levels at the moment. And it was quite astonishing to me how few people are doing computer science, for example, as a degree. So I think yeah. there's that piece as well. So encouraging the young to do these technical courses, I get that they're challenging. I do get that. But to get, if you get the right people doing those roles, we need to encourage that in our young. You know, I think we've got a bit, dare I say, it, a bit lazy with that. And we need to challenge them and get them moving through that process, because then going on to university, et cetera, just as much as we need to persuade people who aren't necessarily security experts right now to come into the industry, we need to ensure there's a new flow of young, new graduates coming out as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because I've actually spoken to an industry expert about this previously. And they said the same thing. And I said, you know, how do you actually specifically suggest encouraging the young? Do you think that it's an idea to implement cybersecurity training into the curriculum? Do you think start at the bottom in schools and teach it as part of the mm -hmm. curriculum like that? How would you actually suggest doing that? I think this is a challenge and I'm realizing this as I've just hit 50 in age and I'm starting <laughs> to suddenly feel like the world is my children's world, not mine. <laughs> and I think there is that thing. Well, I mean, if, if I say to you that suddenly the world does feel different now, when I was their age, cybersecurity, um, it existed, of course it did, because mm. there were computers around, but it really wasn't something that I thought I was going to get a job in, right? It never imagined it. And I think the world is a different place, the kind of education, even though the education system arguably is not that different it's changed significantly since I went through it so I think it's a tough one it's a really tough one there's some people around doing some great things around skills uh, you know skills conferences and things like that and then things like the GCHQ challenges and pushing those out into schools I went to a um, presentation from uh, and the director of GCHQ forgive me I can't remember what his, his title is at um, the uh, Lord Mayor at mansion I house mean, actually because he was at my brother's graduation ceremony a couple of weeks ago okay is it jeremy name is it it could be it could be that well i can't remember if it was him it was at mansion house and what was fascinating about it was they have so 
if I'd thought to myself, I was going to take on a graduate and I was going to put quite a lot of investment into that graduate to, you know, to put them through training, then arguably I think I'd want sort of, you know, five or six years worth of career out of them before they decide to move. What they've, what he was discussing was the fact they've gone down to almost, I mean, they, they think they're lucky if they get three years out of these people, right? And they, they're pulling them out on apprenticeships. And that sounds like a really good, great thing, but there's other ways we must be able to do this. I don't know what the answer is. I ha certainly yeah. haven't got the, the magic bullet, mm -hmm. you, you know, but I think we need to sell it. The, there's some sales that have to happen. You know, arguably, in, we need to get Jeremy Clarkson doing cybersecurity because <laughs> he's certainly what he's done for farming. If he could do that for cybersecurity, yeah. I'm sure we'd see a big bump in people applying for the job. Exactly. And, he seems very influential. Exactly. You know, and, and the other thing is actually, and I've noticed this has been advertised as people advertising. It's a very lucrative industry to get into while there is such a lack of people in it. So yeah. there's that as well. So if somebody's just purely driven by the numbers, that may well be the other way. I, d I don't have the answer for you. And it has to be something that the person's happy to do. Right. Mm. I, don't, you know, I don't want a whole load of people who've gone through university, done cybersecurity just because they need yeah. to be passionate yeah. about it. Right. Mm hmm. In the next section of the podcast, we are getting down to business. And this is where we find out how our guest is planning their future strategy. What are some of the key goals for you in your role for the coming 12 months? Okay, so one of the major things about working for a firm that was founded in 1762 is there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions in its history. And more recently, that's meant a lot of digital information being stored around the business. And I think if we think about somebody's house, a hoarder's house, when you see those pictures of people crawling into a house, which is absolutely <laughs> rammed with stuff. Yeah. The, the problem with digital is, you know, my laptop, I can download another thousand emails. My laptop doesn't get heavier. It mm. doesn't really slow down. So we end up sort of without any sort of any issue, we store thousands of bits of data, which are almost certainly the majority of will never go back to. Mm -hmm. OK. And in some cases, it was people will say, oh, they want to keep it just in case, you know, this happens or that happens. But I think we, you know, a successful business in, in the in the near future will be one that is really uh, sort of is fit in that. You know, if, if we think about keeping fit and running around and making our heart healthy, you have a healthy data environment, which is the data you need. It's lean data possibly, maybe that's the word, I don't know. But making sure you haven't got lots of excessive data, you've got the data you need. And then arguably, A, that means that if the worst case scenario happens and somebody breaks in, you have that data, it's legitimate reason to have it, etc. So there's nobody going to be saying to you, why did you have that? I think as well, as, as we move forward into machine learning and AI and all that kind of thing, then also you're using data that's relevant to you. Because arguably, if you start having bits of data that are old and have no value and don't show an up-to-date information, they're going to be feeding the wrong information into that tool. So I think that that's one of the key ones is talking to people about data and handling it and reducing it and getting it into a fit, lean shape is what I've got on my agenda for this year coming up. Yeah. And um, what are some of your requirements when looking to work with a cybersecurity vendor? And how important are these criteria as one of the UK's leading wealth managers? I think the most important thing is you're dealing with people who have a genuine understanding of what they're trying to sell you. 
that's that's one thing because you can often again obviously cyber has come about and people are jumping on the bandwagon and you want somebody truly understands the product they've got there's some really really clever bits of tools out there and constantly things are being developed you know this is a very fast flowing market and there's some really clever stuff out there i think the most important thing that i look for is it's got good pedigree I've often been rung by somebody who's talking about a product and they go through lots of acronyms and so on. And I start to listen to that and go, "Mm, I'm not hearing something that's going to help me here. And lots of these tools do all exactly the same. And I want to hear somebody who's genuinely, if I see some or hear somebody genuinely talk about a product, I can feel that they know what they're saying and it has true potential, then absolutely, I will, I will, I will look at that product but it's you know it, it's a it's a bit like shooting fish in the barrel I'll be absolutely candid with you at the moment mm. <laughs> okay so that brings us then to the final section of the podcast where we hand over to you okay. you'll have roughly two minutes in against the clock where you okay. can speak uninterrupted on an area of cyber security that you're passionate about the main thing to bear in mind is one piece of advice that you'd like to share with other C-level executives or a lesson you'd like to pass on. So whenever you're ready. Okay. Well, so I think one of the biggest challenges now, we talked about awareness before. I think my biggest challenge and the thing that I'm looking for help in our industry from is for those of us who are B2C businesses like wealth management is ensuring that those people at home understand the stuff. So we, I talked about the awareness that I'm doing for my staff, but we we need to get the people at home aware of some of the sophistication of these fraudsters, hackers, perpetrators, criminals, whatever you want to describe them as, because we are now so vulnerable from people who are spread across the world. And, you know, this the cyber criminal is sitting at home at their desk or at their work computer, wherever they are. And they it's not like breaking a window and breaking into somebody's house. They've got sort of air gap between them and what, what they're doing to somebody, but they are ruining people's lives. And we need to get the awareness better out to those people. I'm thinking, so for example, our biggest challenge is the fact that we've got the average age of our client is 67. So whilst there are some very tech savvy people in that age group, there are also some who have really just pushed it aside and managed to avoid it in their life, in their work time and had little to do with it. So they don't understand this. And I guess my bit of advice, which really is for them, not the C-suite, is pause, take a pause. It's this thing where somebody rings you up, somebody sends you an email, they're looking to, they create anxiety in, in the message that they give you, be it verbally, be it or, or in the email. Take a pause, step back, have a look at the email, listen to what's being said to you and think, is that right? Is what I'm being told here right? Because more, and more often than not, if you really step back and take a pause, you'll probably work out that actually the person on the end of the phone is telling you something that is wrong and it's not your bank it's not your insurer it's not your plumber it's not your wealth manager for example (laughs) it's not the fca it's not the met police these are people who are trying to somehow gain your trust in order to to steal from you essentially yeah so the key message then probably be about awareness because yes in schools and absolutely generation (laughs) absolutely Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. It's been a pleasure to chat to you today. Thanks. It's time to bring the podcast to a close. So thank you and thank you to our listeners. Thank you.